Each day, about 34 million videos are uploaded to TikTok, the video sharing app. That's around 400 videos a second. Most of them are comedy, music, dance routines, cat videos, all kinds of entertainment. Would you rather eat a baby goat or a matter baby? A matter baby? Yeah. What's a matter baby? <laughs> Nothing, sugar. What's the matter with you? <laughs> That's why it might come as a surprise to find out that TikTok has discovered what it calls a covert influence operation targeting Ireland. Someone, or some organisation, created multiple fake accounts which reached nearly 100,000 Irish users on the app. The goal was to spread misinformation and to stir up social conflict. I think that we're correct to link the phenomenon of what we saw outside the doll with the angry protests and rage against politicians um, and the kind of disinformation problem that these reports have highlighted because the topics that were being highlighted, being complained about by those protesters were a roll call of the most popular topics for disinformation. Indeed, in the first half of this year alone, the Chinese-owned company removed more than 2,000 videos posted from Ireland that it deemed had violated its harmful misinformation policy. But these TikToks had already been viewed more than two and a half million times. So what do we know about this orchestrated campaign of misinformation and the impact it can have beyond the app? This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, in an age of bots, fake accounts and bad actors, can TikTok and the other social media giants stop spreading lies? In this episode, I'll speak with Irish Times Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary. Naomi, last week you reported that TikTok had discovered and dismantled what's been described as a a covert influence operation targeting Ireland. Can you tell us about the type of content that was being directed towards an Irish audience? Sure. So what we found out from TikTok is that it had shut down a network of 72 accounts, which collectively had a following of almost 95,000 followers. This was a network that had its origins within Ireland and the individuals behind the network, according to TikTok, created inauthentic accounts. They hyper-posted content with divisive views related to nationalism in Ireland, as well as Japan, Russia and Taiwan. Um, I'm trying to find out more information from TikTok about the precise kinds of posts and the motives that could have laid behind it. We can imagine, though, because disinformation tends to focus on hot topics in society. So I would imagine if we do get access to that data, none of it will be particularly surprising. A lot of disinformation out there about vaccines, about health, um, about uh, transgender rights, LGBT issues, about migrants, minorities, you know, the same topics tend to come up again and again. But presumably, now TikTok knows who created these accounts or or do they or do they just know that they were created in Ireland? Is that as much as they can find out? That's as much as they've revealed for now. Um, I'm sure that they have more information themselves. Um, 
this was the limited information that they reported, which was part of a report that was hundreds of pages long, which was revealing the extent of disinformation on their platform and what they were doing about it. Now, you delved into that report and you saw that 155 videos were uploaded in Ireland in the first half of this year that were sent for fact-checking by TikTok. Of these, 21 were removed due to the check. Are these part of this covert influence operation? The data doesn't show whether they were related to that operation or not. But I think what's really telling about those figures is that number of 155 videos. That's a really stark number in terms of how small it is, because this report gives views and clicks and follows in the millions, occasionally by the billion. Um, And it shows what a small percentage of content is actually being verified. And this is a massive societal shift because This is becoming the dominant way across various social networks that people get their information. They don't go directly to a newspaper or to a broadcaster to find their information or, you know, the news. They find it over social networks primarily. And this is a huge shift because whereas traditional news organizations have editorial policies, they're bound by media law, they have codes of conduct, Journalists are trained, there's editorial policies, and they have to correct something publicly if they get it wrong. Uh, Obviously, online content isn't like that at all. It's a long tradition um, of the internet that platforms like social media platforms are not legally liable for the content that's uploaded on them. So what we see here is a very slow attempt to try to get grips with that and the disinformation issue that that's created that's slowly coming into force after many years of trying. In an effort to clamp down on disinformation, the European Commission created this new code of conduct on disinformation. And TikTok, Meta, Google, YouTube um, and LinkedIn, they've all signed up to it. And it's now their responsibility to report and remove disinformation. But how important has this move been in tackling the problem? Or is it now just really revealing the problem as opposed to actually tackling it? Because it just seems immense. I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg at this moment. So as you say, this this data was reported by those major social media platforms under a voluntary code of conduct. That code of conduct is incentivized by a new, a quite wide ranging package of legislation called the Digital Services Act, which is the EU's attempt to try to get to grips with online platforms and particularly to try to curb this problem of disinformation. Um, So that law, for example, requires major platforms to have systems in place to try to combat uh, disinformation. So that's what we're seeing here. These platforms are revealing these things because they're trying to show this is what we're doing about it and this is what we find on our our systems and this is the action that we're taking. Um, So we're really just starting to see the scale of this. And the reason why this is happening, I think, is because, you know, policymakers are realizing what a massive problem disinformation does pose and the potential risks that there are um, for things like elections and just the functioning of democracy. Far from a warm reception as politicians arrived back at Leinster House yesterday after the summer break. 
So the motivation for many, many disinformation campaigns is to heighten social conflict and division. And, you know, we can see this happening in Ireland most recently with the protests outside the doll there uh, the week before last, where the crowd was shouting out, you know, the usual slogans about sex education in schools, immigration, transgender rights or the proposed hate speech laws. TDs and staff at the Oireachtas complex couldn't leave the grounds for several hours. The protests moved from Kildare Street to the front of government buildings on Merrion Square. But, you know, realistically, what kind of traction do these operations get online? Is, is there not a general awareness from the public that this kind of content is, is usually bots or fake accounts? Like, are people not becoming more savvy to the notion of fake accounts? I think that we're correct to link the phenomenon of what we saw outside the doll with the angry protests and rage against politicians um, and the kind of disinformation problem that these reports have highlighted. Because the topics that were being highlighted, being complained about, these are a roll call of the most popular topics for disinformation. And a lot of people get extremely upset and radicalized by fake information that's not true about these things. And it's really toxic to some of the fundamental things that we just need to function as a society, as a democratic society, which include just a set of agreed upon facts, like, you know, that science is trustworthy, for example. Or that, you know, politicians are legitimately elected, that elections are well run. Things like this, if if faith is undermined too much um, in these, uh, you know, society, democratic society can stop functioning. Um, and this is this is something that's extremely serious, potentially. When the European Commission is considering what to do about disinformation, does it also take a view on who is susceptible to falling down the rabbit hole of disinformation? I think that's probably more a question for psychologists, um, but we can know, we do know that, you know, isolation can play a role. Quite a lot of people were affected during the COVID pandemic, um, also because it was a frightening time and a lot of people were drawn more towards narratives that explained everything, that explained things that seemed difficult to accept. Sometimes it can be comforting <laughs> to think that there's a grand plan behind everything rather than, you know, things are just not necessarily predictable and in control. Nobody could predict the pandemic. It came out of nowhere. And, you know, even like the highest authorities and people in charge were really taken off guard by it. And it can be comforting in some way to think that this was all a plan, you know, that um, mm. somebody was actually in charge of the whole thing um, in a way that, that that can be easier to accept for some people. So, you know, going through difficult times, um, that can fuel this because what's really kind of key to an ordinary person who might have some concerns becoming someone who's radicalized and who's willing to take unusual action, who's willing to go further than they might otherwise would, is a sense of crisis. And this disinformation, which claims that terrible things are going on, that, you know, everyone can't be trusted, there's plots, there's conspiracies, you know, it, 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 people have really evil motives. This is this is absolutely toxic to democracy. It radicalizes people, drives people to the extremes. It makes people willing to do things they otherwise wouldn't. So I think that this is something that we haven't seen before in history, and it's something we need to take, we need to pay very close attention to. And in a way, Ireland can benefit from seeing what has already happened in other countries around Europe, because we already have examples of extreme polarization where people have become radicalised because of, you know, the kind of disinformation that is common online. 
Another thing to point out is that because we're English speaking in Ireland, we get a lot of disinformation that has already been road tested in much larger markets, like among the hundreds of millions of people in the United States. And you can see that, for example, in stories that come into Ireland and start taking off online, like that schools are having to cater for a child that identifies as a cat. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms, a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. It might sound bizarre if if, uh, listeners haven't come across that one, but that's one which I have actually seen now coming online with people claiming the school is in Offaly or in Cork or wherever it happens to be. That particular story is long, long debunked. It's it's disinformation that has been around for ages in the United States. Um, And it's not true. It's a a kind of a, a famous urban myth. And the existence of that story is obviously to undermine um, the gender identity debate and people who identify as transgender. I'll continue my conversation with Naomi O'Leary after this short break. I mean, we should talk about Twitter or actually X, I suppose we should call it now. It has opted out of the code of conduct and like it's sort of nearly doubled down on that because it's recently removed the option for users to report disinformation. What impact is this having on the level of disinformation on the platform, do you think? That's right. We don't have insight into these numbers from Twitter or X because the new owner, Elon Musk, pulled it out of this code of conduct, meaning that they don't. Um, they, they're no longer agreeing to share the data with the European Commission. Um, what the Commission said, though, was that they had undertaken a study, and according to the study, of all platforms that were looked at, disinformation was worst on Twitter. So it was more prevalent and it was also more easily accessed. They co- said it had a higher discoverability on Twitter or X. Um, so we know it's a significant problem there. Um, they are still bound by the DSA, the Digital Service Act, Services Act, and the Commission said that they would be watching closely. Um, but this is definitely a case where regulators are trying to catch up very belatedly with an issue that's become incredibly embedded. And these social media companies have already become massively powerful which, with huge reach. And they're, you know, th- at this point, regulators are just scrambling to try and catch up with the problem. Now, for their part, of course, many tech companies, they say they offer tools to help users verify whether content uh, claims are true or false. What do we know about the take up of these tools? I mean, are they doing anything to combat the problem? You know, are, are tech companies using tools that sort of weed out disinformation before uh, the users scrolling through their phone can see it? That's right. A number of them have introduced different kinds of tools or interventions, which are part of them showing, attempting to show how they're being responsible and trying to address disinformation and misinformation on their platforms. So, for example, 
um, listeners may have noticed this on uh, platforms like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and so on, you sometimes get like a, a little warning pop-up that might pop up and say, you know, this information is unverified or there's reason to believe that this might be false. And in some cases, it might nudge you towards ac- accessing reliable information. This was quite common during the pandemic. Often social media companies would, uh, you know, suggest that you follow a link to see something on the World Health Organization or something like that. Um, so this is um, this is the, the kind of initiative that they're bringing in. But what the reported data showed um, from all these social media companies is that across the board, the engagement with those tools is really, really low. So for example, when someone gets a fact check warning or a, a, a warning that something might not be correct, if they're about to share a piece of content, um, two thirds across Facebook, Instagram and TikTok choose to share it anyway even though they've been warned that it may not be true. That's right. And also something that I found really interesting was something that TikTok introduced was something called a search intervention. A search intervention happens if a user has been looking up keywords which are related to disinformation. And there's a number of key topics where they created uh, search interventions. One was for vaccines, another one was for climate change and for Holocaust denial. We can see how many times these were triggered in Ireland. It was quite interesting to me to, that the Holocaust denial one was triggered the most, apparently. And when you say triggered, what, what do you mean there, Naomi? How does that work? What do you mean? It means a user was looking for keywords on TikTok mm-hmm. that would suggest they're looking for content related to Holocaust denial. So they'll then get a pop-up that says, perhaps you'd like to access some trustworthy information about this. It would offer a link where they can see verified information about it. So um, that happened, that was shown 129,000 times to users in Ireland related to Holocaust misinformation and denial. And for climate change, it was shown over 36,000 times. Um, So we can see that's quite a lot of searching for those topics going on. But what's especially interesting is that only between 0.05 and 2% of users actually chose to click through to see the verified content. Oh, so they were happy to take the information that was being served up to them, even though TikTok was saying, this is not true. They weren't clicking through to see Say if it was saying you can see verified information that's true about this from a respectable organization here, the vast, vast majority of users did not bother to click on it. The engagement with that was quite small. You know, you see similar low levels of engagement on what some of the search engines have introduced, like Google and Bing by Microsoft, is they've introduced like um, little apps or um, extensions to the search browsers, which help users with fact-checking. So, for example, Bing introduced something called the NewsGuard extension for its Edge internet browser, and that displays reliability ratings for websites. But in Ireland, in that period of earlier this year, only one person downloaded that. Um, And for Google's Fact Check Explorer tool, there were only 340 users of it in Ireland in that period. So you can see that the take up is really low. Ireland was not the only country targeted by uh, a covert influence operation network. How does the content that was being delivered in Ireland differ from the content used elsewhere? And and what impact are these campaigns having in other countries in Europe? Well, 
Um, something that we've seen um, is just the, um, increasingly in a number of European countries, we've had severe political polarization. Um, and in a number of countries, this has allowed political forces to grow, which are, they are at least approaching anti-democratic. Um, so I wrote in an analysis um, about this TikTok story that what it reveals is that we should be aware and conscious that if, that attempts to spread disinformation are deliberate. There's a reason why people do this. It can be for profit, profitable sometimes to build up big followings based on outlandish claims that people, you know, get a lot of engagement from. Um, but it, it's also because, like I said, this is very toxic to democracy. And there are people, there are political actors who want to damage democracy, who want to um, grow their support and get into power because they don't support democracy. And we've seen in a number of countries, there's a playbook where disinformation is really crucial. Divisive disinformation is crucial um, to political forces like that gaining power. Once they gain power, they prevent criticism of them. They shut down uh, legitimate outlets of criticism like traditional media. And then they seek to prevent the public from being able to have further free choice in elections because they want to retain power. So this is something that we've already seen play out elsewhere. TikTok is overwhelmingly the social media platform of choice for teenagers. Recently, actually, on this podcast, we heard from teenagers and they all used TikTok. They also said that, you know, while there's some criticisms of TikTok, they found that, you know, often the reaction of older people and what they call, you know, the traditional media to TikTok was, well, a bit over the top. And when we hear stories like this, is there a risk of a bit of panic over TikTok when, you know, in reality, despite stories like this, you could say most of the content is fairly benign. The intention isn't to single out TikTok in particular. And there have been these inauthentic networks on various social media platforms, those actors that want to do this will seek to exploit whatever social media platforms there are. Um, we can, we now, with this data, we have, we are, we have better tools to examine and compare um, how social media companies are doing this. So as an example, the, the, st the figures reported by Meta in terms of how many videos and co pieces of content they fact-checked were way, way higher than TikTok. So whereas TikTok was 155, Meta was in excess of a million on Facebook, if I remember correctly. So obviously, you know, we can compare and some social media um, networks, they can pretty much all do more, I think. Um, in terms of, you know, scares about particular social media networks, I think just TikTok's a little bit newer. Um, maybe it's a little bit less familiar um, to older uh, listeners and maybe it took off with young people earlier and so you know therefore there can be worry and concerns about it it has a really good algorithm which is good for discovering content but I think one of the things about TikTok which other platforms are now emulating but which it's really pioneered is that it chooses for you what content you see so its algorithm chooses for you based on your behavior and that can favor rabbit hole behaviors where if you linger over something um, or you, you know, you kind of are shocked by something or you have some kind of reaction that it registers, you can end up getting sent more and more extreme content. And there are some pretty concerning trends about what that leads to online, including, for example, the massive popularity of 
misogynistic online influencers like Andrew Tate online with young teenagers, which I think is something that's probably, you know, underestimated in terms of how serious it is. And maybe, as you say, maybe that's the generational thing. Maybe it's because older people simply are not seeing that content because they're not really on TikTok, perhaps. I don't know. But finally, um, I think we should say that September wasn't a great month for TikTok because Ireland's data regulator slapped it with a 345 million euro fine for violating children's privacy. Now, TikTok, which is owned by Chinese company ByteDance, it's launched a high court challenge in Dublin, challenging that fine. But with this latest report, what you were reporting on bad actors using the platform, does TikTok have a major trust issue or is the trust issue shared among all the social media platforms? I think it is shared by a number of these social media platforms. What does help them is to be more transparent and cooperate with regulators. And I think that TikTok has taken a step towards sort of detoxifying its image in a way by cooperating. Because as you saw with the release of this data and the reports and stuff, it wasn't TikTok that was so much in the spotlight. It was actually Twitter or X because it, you know, was named by the commission as having the worst disinformation problem and, you know, kind of seemed like the black sheep because it hadn't participated in this. Uh, the reason we're focusing on TikTok is just because that's where it happened to ha- the, the Irish focused influence operation happened to be um, located. So I think that's true. And it's also, it's also you know, relevant that TikTok, it, it, it had the issue with children's privacy, but this also comes on the back of a number of security scares related to TikTok, you know, because it originally comes from China, it has Chinese ownership. There was a lot of scares about how, whether it could be trusted security wise and a number of institutions, including in the EU and various governments, a banned civil servants from having it on their phones due to these con- security concerns. Part of the reason is because a journalist in the Financial Times had her data improperly accessed um, when she was reporting on TikTok. Uh, it seems that there was an attempt to try and find out the, the source of a leak by accessing things like this journalist's um, IP address. Now, TikTok said at the time that, you know, this was like a rogue actor and the, you know the action had been taken and this wasn't their policy but I think that came at a crucial moment and served to like undermine trust in that specific social media network and it's not a coincidence that after that we saw a number of governments and um, administrations take action by saying that their staff shouldn't have the app on their phones. This, as you say, is a major report. Is there going to be much more in it? I know you're delving into it. Is is there much more to come, do you think? This data is going to be reported on an ongoing basis. Um, So this was a six-month period going from January to June this year. Um, and there should be updates going forward as long as those social media companies are, you know, part of this code of, co- of conduct. They should continually report that data. So I would expect we will see more. We should learn more about influence networks and um, disinformation, what the social media companies are doing to combat it. So it's very much watch this space. Thanks very much, Naomi. Thank you. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, including reports and analysis from Europe from Naomi O'Leary, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.